living for? A better future. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Just go with his, that's good. <laughs> my kids, my children's. <laughs> um, so for me, I'm a writer. So I think what motivates me is just the thought of one day having my work out there for everyone to read and just, uh, like the thought of my work being someone's like favorite book one day, like keeps me going and keeps me writing. So I would say that. Um, I don't know, I wanna make the people around me proud and make myself proud. My children. Probably be able to like provide for like my mom and my brother because they took care of me all my life, so. Being able to provide with them for them would be pretty cool, I think. So, um, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is just like the thought of success, and I guess like living up to expectations around me. That's a pretty good driving force, I would say, especially for me personally. I'm living for like you know to enjoy the life that I've been given. So it's That's like yeah. yeah. What am I living for? That is so hard. Um, I don't know. Probably friends Money. and. Hope for the Money. future and stuff. What I'm living for is probably not a traditional answer. It's honestly just a life full of peace. Um, I feel like when I wake up in the morning, what motivates me to go is like be the best person that I can be and help those that are around me and honestly just like rub off my good vibes onto them. So these portraits of people that we asked around our community of what they're living for are a good summary, both of the best and what is most neglected in us. I say the best because we must cheer the sincerity and the image of God that we see in each individual person. But did you notice the one thing that was neglected? Not one person spoke of living for eternity. Of living with a view to spending an eternity somewhere. Now, I don't think it's that these people are against it. Uh, it's simply that they don't think of it. It just doesn't enter very often our active thinking. Now, some of that may be due to a false assurance that has set into our cultural mindset. That false assurance says that God, if he exists, loves me, and therefore I don't need to have to fear or worry about eternity. What I really want God to do is to help me fulfill my dreams right here and now. So this morning, we're gonna take some time to think about this question of how can we live for eternity. Now, I'll have a lot more slides than I normally do, and the reason I'm doing that this morning here on Easter Sunday is that some of us are visual learners, and so I want to capture your attention by some visual things that you can read and hear at the same time. If you are not a visual learner, just look at my beautiful tie, okay? Pay no attention to the things on the screen behind you, okay? So in order for us to think about this question of how we can live for eternity, let's begin by asking this question. What does it mean to say that God loves us? 
I suppose that if you took a poll, nearly everyone would grant, at least who believes in God, would say that he loves us. What does it mean? Well, we'll begin with what it doesn't mean. When we say that God loves us, it does not mean God agrees with me. Uh, If you have a God who agrees with you at every point, guess what? You're your own God. (laughs) Um, It doesn't mean when we say that God loves me that he gives me health, wealth, and success. As I look around this room, I'm aware of different ones who have various of those kinds of concerns, particularly health concerns. Does that mean that God doesn't love you when you meet up with some problem of a lack of health or a lack of wealth or a lack of success? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that God is the one who bails us out of all of our troubles. That's the foxhole God, right? When you get in trouble, God help. It's not wrong when you're in a foxhole to pray for God to help you. And quite often he does, but that's not what it means when, it sa- when we say that God loves us, that he just is there. We kind of leave him alone and we hope he leaves us alone until we need him and then we just pray and he gives us what we want. No, that's not what it means to say that God loves us. Um, it does not mean that God has the goal of blessing me right here and now. If you look at the history of people who have lived for eternity, you would know that. Many of whom did not have very much blessing here and now, but are enjoying blessing forever. So it doesn't mean those things. What does it mean? Well, when we say that God loves us, it means he's conscious of you. Did you know that God is conscious of you as an individual person? He loves you, and that is both frightening and comforting. It's comforting because we know he cares, frightening because we know that we have a a God who's aware of our individual existence. When we say God loves us, it means that he's intentional in his love. He's not just nice. He's not just hospitable. He is, in fact, a consuming fire. The love that created the universe and persists in that love for his most magnificent of his creation, human beings. There's an intensity to God's love. It means that he is jealous in his love. Because God knows that he is the very best for you, he will not ignore the danger that you put yourself in when you try out other gods. Just as a spouse will not ignore the danger that you put yourself in if you were to try out other partners. Now, it's an imperfect analogy, of course, but the fact of marriage makes that jealousy of a spouse a good and right thing. And the very fact of our being created in God's image makes his jealousy of our affections good and right. The fact of God's love for his rebellious creation 
is indeed a mystery. In fact, if you were to press me to the question, why does God love us? I could try to talk for a little while, but ultimately I'm going to say, I don't know. He loves us because he loves us. This is how C.S. Lewis put it in The Problem of Pain. You asked for a loving God. You have one. The spirit you so lightly invoke, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. And he's not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. He's not the cold philanthropy of conscientious magistrate. He's not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. He is instead the consuming fire itself, the love that made the worlds. His love is persistent as the artist's love for his work, as despotic, that is, as pursuing, as persistent as a man's love for a dog, as provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, as jealous, inexorable, and as exacting as love between the sexes. And Lewis says, how this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creature should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. This is what it means then to say God loves us. But we should note that living for eternity requires a kind of dying. And the question is, what kind of dying? Uh, Jesus, in the week before he went to the cross, said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does it mean? What kind of death do we need to die in order to live for eternity? What a question. Now, the Bible describes several kinds of deaths. I'm going to talk about three of them and then remark briefly on yet a fourth one. But let's just think in terms of this group of three. The first kind of death that the Bible talks about is spiritual death. Now, when we use the word death, we sometimes get it in our head that the word death means cessation a stopping of existence. That's not what death means. The word death means separation. And if we capture that understanding of, of the word death, then we will know better what we're talking about when the Bible talks about death. This first death that the Bible describes is called, I'll call spiritual death. We are all spiritually dead, which means that we are separated from God. This God who loves us, there's an alienation that exists between us. Uh, Romans chapter 5 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So everybody is separated from God because both by birth and by practice, we sin. We violate God's righteous decrees. So that's the first kind of death that the Bible talks about. Now, how is it that we can overcome that spiritual death? Well, the answer is by death number two, we die with Christ. We need to die to ourselves 
crucified with Christ if we're to escape slavery and spiritual death. Romans chapter 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. I love the phrases that are in these sentences here. Our old self was crucified. That is the whole person that we are apart from Christ must die. Got to take away all of our pride and all of our self. You know, what is the big reason why people don't put their faith in Christ? The number one reason is the middle letter in the word pride. What's the middle letter? I, you're good spellers, thank you. I gets in the way and we have to die to ourselves in order to live so that the body of sin that is in us from Adam might be brought to nothing and we'd no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. I've put my faith in Christ and I still sin. How can I be set free from it when I have done that dying to myself and putting my faith in Christ? Well, read it carefully. The person who has never died to self, died with Christ, that person is enslaved to sin. That is, they can't help themselves. It's it's impossible for them to rescue themselves. They're, They're enslaved. The person who has put their faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that they never sin, but it means that they don't have to. They're no longer enslaved. They're set free. They actually have the capacity to choose to no longer sin. So we need to die to ourselves, crucified with Christ, if we are to escape slavery and spiritual death. As I asked Friday night at the Good Friday service, how many rights does a dead person have? The answer is none, right? We die to ourselves. So there's another death. The third one is one that we all will face if Jesus doesn't return. This curse that came on the human race because of Adam's sin will not be completely lifted until Jesus' kingdom comes. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable in, or nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That is, we are going to have physical death until Jesus' kingdom comes. So, here are these three deaths. There's spiritual death, that is our separation from God, that can only be corrected by death number two, dying with Christ and trusting him alone to forgive us of our sins. And that will prepare us for the inevitable thing that will happen to every one of us if... Jesus doesn't come back, one out of one of us is going to physically die. Our soul and our body are going to be separated. These three deaths then help us to understand what's going on in the question, how can we live for eternity? Because 
living for eternity in the middle of those three kinds of deaths requires trusting Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection to do for me what I cannot do for myself, which is to make me right with God. Jesus lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. So his life enables to do for me what I can't do for myself. His death paid for my sin. He took my place. He was a sacrifice for me. I couldn't do it for myself. I can't pay for my sin. He was buried. And in his burial, he preached victory over sin and death and Satan. And he rose from the dead to demonstrate that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so he does for me and for you what we cannot do for ourselves, make us right with this God who loves us. Let's look at each of these deaths and think about it in terms of living for eternity. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, death number one, spiritual death, is conquered and we live. Romans chapter five continues, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is, God's unmerited favor poured out on us cures death number one for us. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead, spiritual death is conquered and we live dying to self, because of death number two. Because when we die to ourselves and die are crucified with Christ, we are set free from sin. In dying with Christ, we live. The one who has been set free, who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In dying with Christ, we are set free from sin. In dying with Christ, we live. Now, Death number three, because physical death is inescapable, Christ's death removes the sting of physical death so that we can know that we will never truly die. Has it ever puzzled you in this story in John 11 when Lazarus dies and he's been in the tomb for four days? Jesus meets up with Lazarus' sister Martha and Martha says, if you, had not been, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And they have this little conversation. Then Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, 
Though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks Martha this important question, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, the question that can puzzle us is, wait a minute, Lazarus is dead. How can he say that everyone who lives and believes in him will never die? Well, the answer is that because physical death is inescapable, Christ's death removes the sting of death so that we can know that we will never truly die. What joy is ours. Paul goes on to describe this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead in it will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and when mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when even that separation of soul and body that comes at physical death will be undone and we will receive resurrection bodies that will be perfect forever. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And some of us, like me, am really looking forward to that transformation of this body into one that's just like Christ. Dear friends, let's review. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, death number one, spiritual death, is conquered and we live. Because of death number two, dying with Christ, we are set free from sin, and in dying with Christ, we live, and we can live right now for eternity. And because physical death right now is an inescapable reality, Christ's death removes that sting of death so that we can know that we will never truly die. Now, <clears throat> I would not be a good pastor if I did not tell you also of another death described in the Bible. The scripture calls it the second death because is it's in describing it as the second death, it's describing it in reference to death number one, spiritual death. If you're separated from God and you stay separated from God without dying with Christ, without putting your faith and hope in Christ, you will experience a second separation, which is to be separated from God forever. Here are the words. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... 
Basically, he's saying that sin is what sends us to this lake of fire. Their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, some of you may be very resistant of that idea and said, why is it that Christians are always talking about that kind of stuff? Well, first of all, they aren't anymore. They should talk more about it. (laughs) But the reason why Christians talk about it is because it's a truth. You will either live forever or you will die forever, but you will be conscious forever. You will live united with God and Christ forever, or you will die eternally separated from God. That's what, that's what hell is, an eternal separation from God. The reason why Christians talk about this is because they care. They don't want anybody to go to that place. They want everybody to experience the life, the eternal life that's found in Jesus. So, As we think about these things, I want to ask this question, what can we do? How do we apply this? The first thing that I would encourage you to think about is to trust Christ. Let me turn that off for just a second. If you've never personally asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, as the three people who were baptized did, this is your moment to do that. God loves you. He loves you more than you maybe understood before you walked in here. His love is an inexorable, powerful love. It isn't just a a mamby-pamby kind of hospitable, yeah, I'm basically maybe for you a little bit kind of love. It's a, it is an all-in love that sent His Son to the cross to die for our sins. And so this morning, I urge you to receive the love that Jesus gave us at the cross and say, Lord, I believe that you died for my sins. I trust you to forgive me of my sins. I pray that you would grant me the eternal life that you've promised in the Bible. I want to live for eternity. I'm dying to myself and my own ambitions and I want to live for you. Second way in which we can apply this is uh, just what happened at the very beginning of our service. These folks were baptized as a symbol or sign of God's salvation in Christ. Now, when a person trusts in Christ, Jesus told us to be baptized as a sign or a symbol of our faith. This sign or symbol doesn't give us faith. It doesn't get us to heaven. If you believe that, all you're going to get is wet, okay? It doesn't do that. It's not by any works of righteousness that we do that we are rescued from our sin problem. But understand what's going on when a person is baptized. It's an illustration of what's happened. We, we use Romans chapter 6 in our description. Buried in the likeness of his death, that is that when we dunk a person underwater, it illustrates dying with Christ. Now, pastors Treg and Walt did not, when they baptized these folks, dunk them underwater and leave them underwater. If they had done that, what would happen to them? 
they would have died physically, death number three. (laughs) Didn't do that. Why? Because in dying with Christ, we are also raised with Him in His resurrection. Jesus died and was raised. We die to self and to our sin, and we are raised with Christ in His resurrection to walk in newness of life, to live a new life, living for eternity. And so, if you have put your faith and hope in Christ, you have that hope, you have that eternal destiny, whether you're baptized or not. But baptism is a sign and symbol of your Christian faith, and if you don't do it, you are walking in disobedience to Jesus. He wants you to be baptized. Now, you might ask, well, wait a minute, Pastor Scott, does that mean that if I'm not baptized, I won't go to heaven? No, 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 that's not it. You remember a very famous person who did not get a chance to get baptized, right? Remember the thief on the cross? He's hanging there with Jesus, and he says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Just an expression of his dying to self and and trusting Christ. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. They didn't say to the Roman soldiers, well, time out now. We need to get this guy off the cross to get him baptized, so we, and then we'll put, hang him back on the... No. It's what Jesus does saves us. But when we are baptized, we are saying to ourselves and to the world... We've thrown our whole lot in with him. We're not counting on anything else. And so I urge you, if you've never been baptized after you've placed your faith in Jesus, that you would do that. And then my last application comes from Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. That's death number two. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I am now living in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you live for eternity right now? It takes away all of the silly, phony depressions and ambitions and sorrows and pleasures that this world and its little tiny trinkets and baubles wants to offer and sets our feet on a solid rock where we can walk with Christ all the way to glory. There's a beautiful guide that you will receive on your way out that we've prepared for you a look at the past to help with living for eternity today. In it, there are the stories of three different Christians from three different eras of Christianity, along with a description of our pathways of discipleship that we have here at East White Oak, our Sunday worship, our Bible fellowships, and small groups. It's a very practical guide for you in knowing what next steps to take in your desire to live for eternity. So, Be sure and grab one of these from the ushers before you leave today. About, uh, well, less than a year ago, I became an orphan. 
anytime both your parents are gone, I, I think that defines you as an orphan. Uh, my anticipation, because my mom's death was anticipated, uh, she spent the last year of her life studying heaven, reading the scriptures and books about heaven. She was living for eternity. Um, but her death struck me with far less depression and sorrow than I anticipated, far less. It was not because of her suffering, for the fact is she actually prayed that she would not suffer, and she didn't. <laughs> God was kind enough to answer that prayer. And it's not because I don't love my mother. I do. The reason, as I've reflected on it, is that we're not made for here. This world's not our home. Our treasure is in heaven. I appeal to you, dear ones, to embrace the genuine love of God, trust Christ to conquer that spiritual death, and live. Live for eternity. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, I pray that you would do that work of grace in people's lives. Open blind eyes to see the truth of your word today and that every one of us would take with remarkable joy and seriousness what Jesus has done for us in giving us victory, in dying for our sins, being buried, and rising again on the third day. Lord, I pray that anyone who has questions about the truthfulness of that would grab up the book in the foyer or in the long hallway from Lee Strobel, The Case for Easter, so that they would know that there is, these things are based in historical fact. They are not just some kind of made-up fable. And I pray that you would draw people to this beautiful faith in Christ by your love. Help people who are right here and now wrestling with this question, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Help them, Lord, right now to say, Lord, I am a sinner. I am experiencing spiritual death, separation from a holy God. I know you love me. You sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive me of my sin. I put my faith in you, Jesus, to forgive me. I believe you died and were buried and you rose again from the dead. And so give to me the eternal life that you promise and help me now to continue to die to self and live for eternity. Help that one who's put their faith in Christ but has never yet been baptized to take that next step of discipleship. And Lord, help all of us as we go away from here to be mindful, not just of our everyday lives, but of an eternity that beckons where Jesus Christ is Lord for all the ages. In his name we pray, amen.